Ooh. Oh God. I, I think I think the worst thing a comedy could do is like age well, actually, because like I think like you have to be speaking to the moment to the flaws of like the people that are currently living in the society that you're in. And uh, this movie, yeah, it's less problematic because it's so honest about like the things, the unsavory things that these characters are doing and, and the flaws that they have. Um, so I. I can't think of a movie that hasn't aged well. Like, I feel like it's more animated movies for me. Like, that you're like, oh, that's a crazy racist thing to be in this cartoon, you know? Really? <laughs> yeah, sort racist of. Racist cartoon? Well, because it's like, we just don't think, we didn't think about it. I mean, if you rewatch Grease, like the original Grease, yeah. which oh, is fantastic, yeah. and we love Grease, but whoa. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> whoa. I've, whoa. Yeah. Like, when he's, like, trying to convince her that, like, there's an atomic, like, war going on, and... <laughs> She's like, I don't want to. And he's like, you're doing it. And the whole lesson of the movie is you should, I think it would be good if you change who you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and be more like who I want you to be. Yeah, that'll be yeah. good. Welcome to a special episode of Not a Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bomb and maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, every once in a while we squeeze in these special episodes with one of our favorite um, people ever and uh, talk about a very specific topic. Um, do you want to do you want to do the formal introductions? Because we're, we're super excited to have this person back. Yeah, it's kind of like Not a Bomb goes back to school. So we have our, our favorite professor, writer, filmmaker, and now three-time guest on Not a Bomb. So it is now a, a, a fine career for uh, Dr. Michelle Meek. I think I'm going to have to add this to my bio now. Yes, exactly. That we would be honored. Actually, <laughs> th- this is our favorite. Like Brad said, it is like it is like going back to school. Um, how is this uh, semester going? Everything going smooth? Any interesting crazy stories you have for us uh, from a filmmaking teaching perspective? You know, there's always crazy stories, but then it's like, what can I actually share of crazy stories? There there is that, (laughs) isn't there? You know, the the filmmaking process is a lot harder than it looks. Let's just say that. (laughs) That makes total sense. I I do have this one question from, uh, because I couldn't even begin to understand what goes into teaching film. I, I try and do this little experiment with my kids. And sometimes we sit down and, and uh, say, okay, we're going to watch this and give you a little background. It's super important. And, you know, not within 30 minutes, the phones come out. And then when it's done, they're like, yeah, it's okay. Um, what is the hardest part about teaching anybody um, from, you know, that, that comes to your class and wants to learn about film or filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. The way we watch films now is just a lot different than maybe we did before with less distractions. Although um, I think especially for students who are really interested in making films, they tend to be more invested in wanting to learn about the films that they're watching. And um, I guess, you know, the, the challenging part is a combination of finding films that are really important for students to watch, like picking 
out of all of the films, what are the ones that you're going to put on your syllabus? That feels like a really important choice to me and one that should be made consciously. And um, yeah, and then giving some variety, you know. Um, and it's funny because I love movies that are actually bombs. But then, you know, you think, okay, is this the film when I'm only going to be screening 15 films this semester? <laughs> should I be including something like that? Um, so that's always a challenge to kind of pick what are going to be the ones that you highlight. And when you put a syllabus together, are the film choices different each time? Or do you have, you know, a handful that you're always including and then you mix it up from there? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. Um, I'm I'm one of the sort of roles I have at my university is I'm the film studies coordinator. And we're actually doing a survey right now to find out what films people are teaching generally, because we found that, you know, some students had seen Lost in Translation, for instance, in three different classes. For some reason, that was a film that a lot of professors were putting on their syllabi. And um, even though, I mean, I love that film too, and actually it was on mine as well. (laughs) But, you know, we want to offer more variety. Like if students have already seen that in a screenwriting class, then they don't need to see it in another class or if they've seen it in, you know, intro to film or whatever. So um, I think there tend to be go-to films that we all have. And and yeah, it's about exposure to, you know, a lot of different genres and styles and types of narratives. And um, I mean, I think that's really important in the film class I'm teaching right now. I'm teaching a documentary film production class. And I actually really enjoy a more poetic style documentary, which is not as traditional. Um, And I do have actually a couple of students leaning towards making a film in that genre this semester. And so, you know, including films that are in that genre are important as well. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting when you talk about documentaries for, for those who maybe aren't, um, I don't know, film fans or film buffs, when they think documentaries, they think there's one style and right. there's all these sub genres of documentaries. And, and that kind of is a interesting transition to, um, the romantic comedy. So we're talking, I think it's a sub genre of romantic comedies, um, today, I have no idea how to label this. I was going to say, I was looking forward to how you were going to create a subgenre out of this. But so I was thinking about this. Um, I, I think it's the cougar rom-com. Is that how you <laughs> the would? Co- the cougar comedy. Yeah. The cougar comedy. Okay. Is that an official thing or did you guys just make that up? Well, <laughs> let's don't type that on the internet. Let's just say that. Okay. Um, <laughs> But it is interesting because we're, we're talking about two films. You, you had uh, behind the scenes given us a list of these great topics mixed with these different films. And one movie stuck out uh, only because it was very reminiscent of a film that came out this year. And um, Brad, you want to talk about the two films we're, we're going to discuss this evening? Yeah, so we're going to talk about 1989's Lover Boy. And we're going to talk about 2023's No Hard Feelings. Yeah. So cougar comedies. Yeah. Both involve uh, older women with younger men, right? At its core. And um, one is told through the 80s comedy filter, and the other one is, is told through 2023. 
Um, one of these showed up in your book, though. I think it's in the first chapter. You have uh, a couple of pages on Loverboy, if I'm not mistaken. And you were kind of going through the history of um, just movies in general. And when you get into like the teen sex comedy of the 80s, this is one you reference. And in the book, just for those who who don't know, because we've, we've put this on the website and everything else, um, it's your book, Consent Culture in Teen Films. Adolescent Sexuality in U.S. Movies uh, was just published this year, right? Yes, indeed. It's a long year. I'm like, I'm still talking about (laughs) it. still talking about it. (laughs) Still talking about it. (laughs) Um, But but it was in the section, The the Eroticization of Youth, Teen Sex Comedy, Sexploitation, and Child Pornography, 1960s to the 80s. Loverboy is mentioned in there. Um, and I was, I was trying to think, okay, what other films would fit this new, I don't know if it's new, but let's call it, we, we frame the, uh, the conversation as cougar, uh, romantic comedies. You have the two (laughs) movies we're talking about tonight. Some other ones would be what the graduate that would classify, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, risky business with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hello. My name is Doris with Sally field. Would that qualify? I don't know that film. You haven't seen that from 2015? No, I have not. Maybe that's for another episode. Okay, <laughs> I yeah. don't know that film. It's so good. I mean, Sally Field cool. yeah, um, is amazing. Uh, Home Again from 2017, I think with Reese Witherspoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this genre has been around for a while, and it's still going into this year. Um, Stifler's Mom in American Vibe. I was going to say, it also, it kind of emerges within films like that where it's not the whole story, but it's one facet of the story. Okay. Well, this this is the question I would have for both of you before we talk about these films, because one was a box office bomb and the other one is a moderate success. But I, I, I guess the question is this, because anytime you get into a romantic comedy or film where there is a huge age gap between your two lead characters, there's a little bit of controversy. Um, and, you know, there's been controversy when it's uh, older females with younger men and uh, older men with younger females. Right. But I, I guess my first question is this. Is it do you think and I'll start with you, Michelle, do you think it's easier for film go- goers um, to digest or accept the film when it happens to take place with the older woman being a bit more sexually aggressive to a younger man versus the other way? I think there's no doubt about that in more contemporary films that positioning an older woman and a younger man, you know, as long as he's over 18 is less problematic than the swapping the genders. Um, Years ago, I would say that those kinds of films existed kind of both ways. And there was a, a, you know, a period in the nineties when there were a lot of young girls with older men films where the girls were actually kind of like more the predators in that film, in those films. Um, you know, the Amy Fisher documentaries, uh, uh, films, not documentaries, the Amy Fisher films. And um, so I think that now for sure, like I really did think when I saw No Hard Feelings, I don't think they could make this film with the genders re- reversed today. That, that is 100% true. marketable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I was kind of thinking the same thing because I do remember 
thrillers, like uh, you, you mentioned the Amy Fisher um, film, which I think Drew Barrymore did that. She was in another one, po- Poison Ivy. Um, yeah, and there was a whole series of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, where it, it seemed like it worked in the neo-noir space, but in the romantic comedies or something that is a little bit more general public feeling, it seems like it, it has to be this in order for, for the audience to, to digest it a little bit better. But that said, like in the 80s, there was a film like Blame It on Rio. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but, (laughs) um, you know, Michael Caine and um, is a a dad. The two dads go on vacation with their teenage daughters. And I think they're like maybe 16 or 17, like they're younger, although they look like adults, but and probably were played by adults. I don't remember. But um, and then one of the dads has an affair with the other. I believe one of the girls was young because I think her parents had to sign for her to be. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, geez. Yeah, it's yeah. Interesting. So yeah. she might have been the other girl is the other girl is Demi Moore. Uh, right. Yeah. Michelle Johnson, I think, is the other mm-hmm. girl. I think so. Oh, that could be. I don't remember her name, but yes, Demi Moore is in it, but she is not the one that has the affair with the dad. She's the yeah. she's Michael Caine's daughter. And that movie, I mean, there's nudity in that movie. It's extremely sexually explicit. And the girl in the film is is not so much a predator, but they're like she's very sexually mature in the film or she's, and it's shown as not problematic that they're having this relationship because she's so mature Uh, and similar types of films, you know, or scenarios in in a film like Manhattan um, with Woody Allen's character, Isaac and Muriel Hemingway, who was a teenage high school girl in the film. Um, And so I think, you know, it it was a, Kind of came about, I think, more in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the shift came, you know, with consent culture and being just more aware of, of sex trafficking and 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 the idea that um, of consent, I think, an age of consent. Um, and then it really became less tenable to depict a young girl with an older guy without it, with it seeming not problematic. Uh, is is it different or I'm trying to think how to phrase this question because you bring up Woody Allen and I think Woody Allen films have always had some type of European sensibilities to them. And I think that's why he, I mean, he feels comfortable um, making some of the films with those topics and they seem to do a little bit better overseas than they do in the U S. So do you think it's, it's going to be the same model for like, um, let's just take Europe, for example, European countries, do they look at it through the same prism that we do for an American audience? Or do you think there's, there's just different tolerances? I I think actually the whole concept of an age of consent has really through, it has permeated Western culture a lot, not just the U S I mean, maybe it was kind of started more here, but um, I think that there's actually you know, age of consent has been lifting in a lot of different cultures. So I think it's it's not just here. Um, that said, there's no doubt that in in European countries in general, there's there's less um, kind of panic, let's say, about youth and sex, and that changes a lot um, of how it's depicted and how it's um, perceived and understood. I mean, Woody Allen at the time he made Manhattan was really more of a U.S. filmmaker. I think that it, I mean, not that he wasn't popular in Europe. I think he sort of became more European filmmaker primarily after 
um, there was more pushback on his own relationship mm-hmm. with Sunyi and um, and then, you know, sort of reframing that and also um, how he's perceived with his, you know, the allegations of sexual abuse. And um, so he became a little he came, became kind of untouchable, I think, more here. Plus, I don't think his films do make a ton of money in the U.S. And so that's also a factor. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I only say that because I think of a film like Luc Besson's um over here was called the professional international was called Leon. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of scenes with Natalie Portman that were kind of taken out for the U S release because anytime that she became, um, I, I guess, you know, within the script sexualized, not by the, um, the assassin character, but her trying to, I guess, seduce, um, Jean Reno, that was not within the U.S. cut, but it did display in the international cut. And it just seemed like, to your point, yeah, that that would be very panicky moment for U.S. moviegoers. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to be okay um, from a European cut and distribution. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, everybody got to see it, you know, on the home video market. But I've always I've always felt that there's a little bit of um. What year was that? Oh gosh, you that know? was that early '90s, Brad. I can't think of the top of my head. Leon or the Professional? I mean, I feel oh, it's like, like '90s. Yeah, early '90s. Yeah. There was definitely a shift in the early 90s. I mean, I remember when I was doing research on the Amy Fisher, um, there were three television movies made about Amy Fisher. And for those who don't know, Amy Fisher was a teenage girl who had a relationship with an adult. I think he was 38 year old man, Joey Buttafuoco. And she ended up shooting his wife. His wife survived. And, um, you know, she was very much depicted in the media as, a perpetrator, which, you know, okay, fair. She did shoot Mary Jo, but a few go, she sure, was. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, she, you know, now we would look at her as, you know, under the age of consent, eventually sex traffic. She became a sex worker under um, Joey's, like, and he made the introduction. So I think we would frame it a lot differently now. And one of the things that I noticed when I was doing research on um, when that film came out and that story was in the media was directly after that, we started seeing the story about Woody Allen and Sonny. It like, we were sort of, it was a, a, a topic. Like in a the, cultural shift a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was just a topic in the air about what, do, what are we making of these young girls and older men scenarios? How are we feeling about that? And, um, and th- there's no doubt that that some of the um, cultural conversations about that started to reframe how we were seeing those scenarios. Okay. Well, real world event like Monica Lewinsky, if we think about that scenario, yeah. the whole conversation on that in 2022 and 2023 has shifted. We used to like slut shame. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, no, she was like taken advantage of by someone with power. And it, right. it definitely shifts that conversation. And I think for the better due to like the truth on the matter is, is like, yes, she was seduced by a very, the most powerful man in the United States. And uh, we look back on that and, you know, she became the bigger person and Bill Clinton, you know, for it is what it is. But I, I just think that whole conversation around victim blaming and hasn't shifted all the way, but in certain scenarios, we are seeing people realize that, you can take advantage of people um, in any, in any sort of scenario. And I, I, it's for the better. 
to be I honest. think that's true. I mean, one of the things that I think is really important is to not lose sight of the fact that not to flip it all the way. So, you know, to think of Amy Fisher or someone like that as having agents, a total agency in that situation is ridiculous. Right. I mean, she was a teenager. He was an adult. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't that she had no agency either. And so I think, you know, I think that the complicated truth is that as a victim, you also can exert some agency. Um, and one of the films that I really love that handles this quite well is um, a film like Diary of a Teenage Girl. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's a more recent movie. I want to say it was like 2015 or 2016 or somewhere in that ballpark. And it's a story about a 15-year-old girl who has a relationship with her mother's boyfriend. And it takes place in the 70s. And I think that's like a little bit of a pass where it's like, oh, this could never have happened now. This was in the past. But it's also semi-autobiographical, which is why it takes place in the 70s. But that film does a great job of depicting how Minnie has agency, but at the same time is completely uh, also a victim you know, and sort of abused by or taken advantage of or exploited by this adult in the relationship as well. I, I think that comes up in your book um, at yeah. some point that, cause I, I did write that title down. Um, yeah. I, hey, look for, for anybody who hasn't picked it up yet, I strongly encourage this, this type of topic and this type of conversation um, is covered as well as many other topics within Michelle's book. I, I do want to go back to 1989 and and let's talk about the the cougar cinema and the romantic <laughs> comedy, and and let's tackle Lover Boy first. So, Brad, this we're talking two films. One of these bombed, and um, it's it's the one we're going to tackle first, right? Yeah. So, like you said, uh, released uh, April twenty eighth of nineteen eighty nine with a reported budget of eight point five million dollars. Where did they spend that money? I don't know. Well, um, has they, yeah, nineteen eighty nine dollars. That's that's yeah, not it's uh, like a billion dollars now. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, total box office run is four million dollars. Um, yeah, so it's opening weekend. It makes one point six five million dollars. That's good enough for eighth place. Uh, we got films like Pet Cemetery, K Nine, Major League, Criminal Law, The Dream Team, Say Anything. Oh. And Rain Man, talk about a film that we look back on much differently now than we did back in 1989. Get off my lawn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lover Boy sits at a 50% with the critics. Uh, that's with 10. So Troy, five critics gave this a pass. The other five did not. And we're looking at 56% with the audience. I'm I'm assuming, uh, uh, was I the only one that saw this in the theater when uh, it first released? I, I, if my parents took me to see lover boy when I was six, they should, uh, okay. Put away. I don't know. I have no I don't idea. Remember if I saw it in the theater, to be honest, I probably saw it on video. That's my guess. I, I, I remember seeing this, uh, <laughs> Wichita, Kansas town, West square, you know, it was one of those, um, I don't know if you had these days, Brad, where they would drop you off at the mall and be like, here's 20 bucks. And they don't, you know, yeah, you're gone for the day. You would see well, a what else films. are you going to do in Wichita, Kansas? Exactly, on it's the mall. Um, Look I, across I, the I do remember state. seeing this and and just catching on HBO like all the time. It felt like this was in constant rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for a bomb, it's gotten a lot of play. It, it has. <laughs> yeah. it, had, it had some life. <laughs> uh, films also released in April of 1989. We have Cyborg Troy. Oh, Jean Claude. The Dream Team. Uh, Major League. 
Major League made $49.7 million. That's good. Say anything. She's out of control. Field of Dreams. Pet Cemetery. Criminal Law. Canine. And Scandal. Oh. Yeah. And just a little bit of context. 1989 saw a bunch of big films come out. But the highest grossing comedies... So I'm looking at Honey, I Shrunk the Kids at number five that year with 130. Ooh. Look Who's Talking with 116 or 113. Ghostbusters 2 is a semi-comedy at, at 112. Harry, When Harry Met Sally is kind of a rom-com, so we'll give that at number 11 with 92. Turner and Hooch. Turner and Hooch was the 12th highest growing film of 1989. 71. Yeah. Uncle Buck at 13. Twins at 15. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation at 20. Oh, topical. Major yeah. League at 23. Um, I'm trying to think. And then, oh, Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure at 31. Moral of the story is lots of comedies would chart in 1989. A little bit different in 2023, but we will get there. Yeah, very good year for comedies. Um, not much to talk about. In terms of the filmmakers uh, or the people behind the camera, we've got a director, Joan McLean-Silver. Her her filmography is interesting. Leading up to this one, I, I'll be honest, when I looked at it, there was only one other film that I think I've seen from her. I don't know if you two have seen this. It's an Amy Irving film called Crossing Delancey that came out the year before. Are you, either of you familiar with this? No. Yeah. Oh, Okay. It's, it's not, I don't know what you think about it, Michelle. I, I remember seeing I it. It's not bad. I haven't seen it, but I, I've heard, I know the title. I yeah, it's not it. bad. It's, it's a, it, it feels like just a smaller, I wouldn't even call it a romantic comedy. It's just more of a romance film, but it's not bad. Screenplay. There's three people. Um, Robin Schiff, who gets story and screenplay. Tom Ropalewski, excuse me. Um, Leslie Dixon, Leslie Dixon's the interesting one, because if you look at the other two, there's not much, uh, there's nothing really memorable, but Leslie, and, and this is late eighties going into early nineties. Um, she did the screenplay for overboard. One of your favorites, Brad 87, yeah, she did lover boy in 89. Look who's talking now in 93 and Mrs. Is that the sequel or is yeah. that the third yeah. one? Uh, well, that's the one with the dogs. Yeah. Look who's talking Two. Two. T-O-O is the yeah. second one. Look who's talking now is with the dogs. That one. S yeah, same year yeah, did uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Ooh. There you go. Um, let's talk about the cast real quick. I've really, I've really got to ask you about this. So Patrick Dempsey, I, that's who we're going to talk about. We'll list everybody else in there. The cast is crazy. Patrick Dempsey yes. is Randy. Now, um, I don't know if you guys know this. I found this out when we were buying our turkey for Thanksgiving Day. Um, at 57, he's 57, he was just named uh, by People Magazine the sexiest man alive. Did, did you guys know this? No. I heard that. Yeah. It's, you go to your supermarket. It's right there. So, Also, I, yeah, he is a fantastic race car driver, Troy. Oh, he is? I did not know that. Well, I mean, oh, just yeah. tell me, where, where, where do you guys land on Patrick Dempsey? Is are you, are you a fan? I mean, I find the People Magazine vote here. Um, I, as long as Henry Cavill is still alive, I don't think he should win this title. I think Henry Cavill is still the sexiest man alive, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but I'll start with you, Brad. Where, where do you land on Patrick Dempsey in his career? 
You know, I'm not a big Grey's Anatomy fan. I know that's hard for people to believe, um, but I do. Well, I mean, he comes up in Scream Three a little bit. Like his his filmography isn't. He's in the Thanksgiving the, horror movie that just came out. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, he does. I, right. his, if you look at his filmography, it's crazy. He's in the new Michael Mann, uh, new Michael Mann film Ferrari. So I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Michelle, are you are you a Patrick Dempsey fan? You know, I I really loved Patrick Dempsey when I was younger. Like he, there was a movie in the mood that he was in that yes. I remember really liking. Um, and I actually loved Loverboy when I was younger. Um, and I just thought he was a very very appealing kind of played an appealing character. I think in films and thought he was cute. Um, is he the sexiest man alive? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I would have to see all the men and then I can <laughs> uh, wow. line up all 4 billion yes. men. And I can will... you line them up for yes. me? That is fair. Uh, <laughs> that is, that is fair. I think I'm still going with Henry Cavill, but I like, I mean, he's I like not, your approach. He's not, not sexy though. Right? Like he, we, we can agree. He's yeah. sexy. Definitely. Well, I'll say this. So to Michelle's point, he was one of those guys in late eighties I, I always thought he made like fun films because um, Can't Buy Me Can't Love, Love was mm-hmm. was great. And I liked yeah. the one that he did with uh, Jennifer Connelly, Some Girls. Uh, so he he did this string of, of films in the late 80s that you just kind of knew him. But if, if you had told me, hey, watch Can't Buy Me Love. And then, I don't know, 40 some years later, that guy's going to win like sexiest man alive out of, on the earth. I mean, people is basically people magazine is basically saying out of everybody on earth. Patrick Dempsey is the sexiest man alive. I would have never thought that in the late eighties, like that kid wasn't going to win that one. Um, but, but you know, this kind of thing happens. I mean, Turner and Hooch, you know, with Tom Hanks, I mean, I, I love Tom Hanks from his bosom buddy days. Oh yeah. And you know, and then he, he was in splash and then made a series of really bad movies like the burbs, burbs. Turner and Hooch. I mean, just, Talk about bombs. And I thought the birds thought he hold was on. super cute and great. Oh. <laughs> the, and then he, now he's like, you know, he he he, he runs Hollywood. Yeah. You're right. right exactly. You're right. He does. The burbs. Yeah, okay, a bombed, but it's still a funny film. The I'm money gonna, pit. Okay, that one's that one's yeah. not good. All right, I'll give you that one. Um, here's some other people in it. Uh Kate Jackson plays Randy's mom, Diane Bodek. Uh, some people might know her from Charlie's Angels. She's on the original TV show. Robert Ginty as uh, Joe Bodek, Randy's dad. If you're a, um, I don't know, 80s B-movie action fan, you would know him from a lot of those films, especially like The Exterminator. Uh, in that series came out in 1980. Uh, Nancy Vallon plays Jenny, Randy's ex-girlfriend, um, or the, the girl he's trying to get back by doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of stuff, I think people might recognize her for a couple of, um, seasons on Baywatch. Um, this, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, Brad, one of our favorites, Dylan Walsh plays Jory. Now this is the guy after Randy's ex-girlfriend. He's showed up on the show before when we talked about 1995's Congo, he played Dr. Oh, Peter yes. Elliott. Peter Elliott. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Um, this is where it really gets interesting. We'll start with Barbara Carrera as Alex. Um, I think the movie that I discovered her was never say never again from 83 when they tried to bring Sean Connery back into the James Bond franchise. 
but it wasn't a part of the original canon. Um, then here you go. Kirstie Alley has um, a small part as Dr. Joyce Palmer. And when she did this, she had another big film come out that year. You just mentioned it. Look who's talking. And she's still doing Cheers because that ran or she was on that from 87 to 93. Then we get Carrie Fisher. Princess Leia shows up. Um, yeah, what? I said, it was just a crazy cast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Kim Miori as Kyoko. We've talked about her, Brad, when we talked about Dolph Lundgren's The Punisher. She plays Lady Tanaka. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Oh. And then Elizabeth Daly is Linda, which is the dad's secretary. And that's uh, Dottie from Pee-wee's Big Adventure from 1985. So I, I don't know about you guys. Every time I see this film, the cast astounds me. Like they got this many people in front of the camera for this film. Maybe that's where the budget went. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> now that we talk about it, I'm like, oh, that's where the $8.5 million went to. I mean, you got Princess Leia in your movie, so. Yeah, for 10 minutes, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Chrissy. But Ellie, she's on the billing. Like, she's on the poster. She is, yeah. Well, I just, I I, I want to kind of get your, th- there's not much to talk about from a production and development. I couldn't find anything like crazy stories behind the scenes. Um, so I, I want to kick it over to you, Michelle, on, on your thoughts in this book, I, I guess before we get into that, just real it's quick, a mo- it's a, it's a movie, Troy. It is. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <Caught it. laughs> I did. Yeah. But I, I, well, here's, here's where my question was going. Um, raise your hand. If you've ever had to put your hair in a textbook and smash it to get it to stand up correctly. <laughs> Has anybody tried that? No, no. I went, when I was in school, it was like you wanted your hair to be as far down as possible. Like, you no, know, late eighties, it had to be spiky. So oh, you had to, yeah. you had to, okay. <laughs> well, Michelle, this is one of the films that you threw our way to talk about. Um, what do you think about this one, especially through the optics of, um, 2023? I mean, this is one of those movies that I just have a, a lot of mixed feelings about because I always did really love the film when I was like, I've, I've, I do love Patrick Dempsey. I think that the premise is totally bizarre, but offers some some good comedy. But, you know, I just think part of it, too, that's appealing to me is just the whole idea of these women who are living in this suburb and married and what is it that they're really looking for? And the undertones of that I think are very intriguing to me, but um, you know, obviously there's some deep problems in this film and it's hard to talk about it today without really recognizing some of those issues. Um, And then the whole ending, it's just, I don't know, like why is there such a long chase and fight? And it just felt like, Maybe that's also where some of the budget. <laughs> the piano on they the police car. They could have really trimmed that down, in my opinion, and saved another million. But um, you know that, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so let's talk about the premise. the The premise is a kid, two years in in college, um, gets bad grades, uh, breaks up with his girlfriend, goes back home, is trying to get back to school. He's working at uh, senior pizza, which is a Mexican pizza place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's where my problems start here. It starts there. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. just, 
my biggest problem. Let's just say that. Okay. Okay. Um, and so what happens is he, he tries to pick up a, a young lady in a very, I don't know, posh clothing store gets rejected, but an older woman, Barbara Carrera, um, comes up to him and, and says, Oh, she shouldn't have shot you down, et cetera. Ends up, uh, finding out where he works because he's driving around this blue truck with a sombrero on it or something from, you know, he's a pizza delivery guy. And so the, the whole joke is if you order a large pizza with extra anchovies, then he's going to deliver it. And for $200, he is going to, uh, make somebody happy for, you know, the <laughs> evening. Right. And so Barbara render services, Troy render services. And they're not of the Italian uh, pizza making thing. Um, so he does that like 43, 45 times. Cause he's got to make $9,000 <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what makes me feel old is when they throw numbers out, like, Oh, I'm, I'm working for $4 and 80 cents an hour. Um, and tuition is $9,000 tuition is not $9,000 anymore, but, um, yeah, that's the whole premise lucky of it's it. It's $9,000 a semester. Now. Yeah. Uh, and it's all, it's all done for comedy. And so to your point, Michelle, he, he this is where we get Barbara Carrera, Kirstie Alley, Carrie Fisher, Kim Miori. Um, they all sign up for the extra anchovies service, but it's not just for sex. It ends up being, I guess, um, dance lessons, massage. I, I don't know where it goes, but it's, <laughs> it's so zany and it's all done in this very slapstick manner. I mean, that, that pretty much sums up the film, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, he doesn't start out as a sex worker, so to speak, right? Because he I guess that is the right he... technical term, isn't it? He is a <laughs> sex mean, worker. I mean, that is essentially he is a what sex happens. Worker. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's so bizarre that it's this comedy, but um, you know, she, the, the first woman that he ends up having a, you know, a sexual relationship with whatever we want to call it, um, gives him $200 when she's kind of leaving town as a way to thank him for just, and also to help him out. And he, at first he doesn't want to take the money, right? He says, I don't, I don't know. It's not about that. So it's really just an affair or a, a sexual relationship at first. It's not, yeah. He doesn't start off as as doing it as per, for some money, but then what what happens is she kind of like almost like traffics him <laughs> because then she does <laughs> she, she does because then she ends up telling friends call this pizza place and ask for extra anchovies and you know ask for Randy and then he, this is the service he provides and the first day that he you know, he goes to someone's house when she's kind of done that, he says no immediately. He walks in and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. That was, this is, that was like not what I had intended. And she starts to cry. And now he feels badly because she's upset and he doesn't want to make her feel like bad about herself, but she already does. And so he gets like kind of roped into it in this. Oh, he gets, he gets, uh, yeah. it's a major guilt trip for him. Kyoko yeah. is the one who does it, get, mm-hmm. puts him in the guilt trip. Yeah. Um, it, it's crazy. And I guess once he accepts his new profession as a sex worker, um, he starts taking dance lessons from a VHS tape. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think he, he lays out all of his sports equipment on the bed to create a female 
so that he can practice his techniques on it. So you get these little vignettes there of him, I don't know, trying to be a ladies man from a comedy's perspective. Uh, and while this is all happening, you have this subplot because he, uh, <laughs> there is a mix up with a suitcase. There's also somebody who drops off a, a jacket, which is his coworker who has, happens to be Italian and his father finds a note from Alex. And so his father thinks that his son is gay and yeah, you, yeah we're, the gay panic is in this movie. Gay panic is in it. You, you, will, you will hear the term fruit a couple of times because that constitutes the, the, the comedy of the late eighties. So there, there is a lot going on in this film. Um, I, I guess this is the question though. Is it funny? I, I had a hard time with this one because <laughs> I, I had seen it and I, I don't think it's very, very funny. Um, this isn't an eighties film that I, I would go back to, or that I was, you know, like breakfast club, has its problems, but I saw breakfast club a hundred times and I will go back to that and I will defend it. Uh, this one, I'm not going to die on a hill for, um, it's just not one that I think is very funny. Um, I do like Patrick Dempsey. I think he is charming, but I just, I don't know. I, I am not, I'm not going to defend this one because it is not (laughs) anything I have nostalgia for. Brad is so worried he's going to get canceled. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to get canceled. Um, yeah, and, and the gay panic is a bit much. When you say that they say fruit a lot, they do, but I was always always expecting it to be a hundred times worse. So I'm just glad it stopped it. Well, at that. the at the end, they they do accept him, only yep. to find out it's all a big misunderstanding. Not, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yep. the mom accepts him right away. Yes, um, that is true. <clears throat> so she offers some. You know, she's not. Sure. I mean, they actually have a big fight and she starts to withhold sex from her husband because she doesn't like that he's snooping and being so hard on her on their son. Right. Um, So and then when he's concerned about finding the clothes and thinking that he might be gay in the letter and she's saying, don't jump to conclusions. And she's very clear about that, you know. Um, she's going to accept whatever the situation is. So we get that sense from her early on. I, I have a question. So that I think that there's some like, maybe some logical holes in this story. Well, there's a few. There's a few. <laughs> a lot holes. Okay. Yeah. Wait, why doesn't he want to have his girlfriend come home? Like, I, I don't know. I, I was very confused. Is <laughs> that clear? Did I miss it? No, because in the beginning, I, I get the feeling um, he's, they establish he's having problems with his grades and his, and his parents are very controlling of the lifestyle and everything else. And he's living with this girl for the last two semesters, but he hasn't told his parents about it. And he seems to be a big partier um, with the spiked hair and, and the frosted tips, everything else. I mean, where he starts in the film versus where he ends up totally different character, right. And look and everything. Um, but I didn't, I didn't quite understand that. Like what was the big deal of the parents finding out that he wasn't living with, uh, another guy at college. It was another girl. And then that again becomes another subplot of when is he going to introduce his girlfriend to his parents? But it's also, I mean, not only does he not tell them that they're living together, they don't know he has a girlfriend. Yeah. That just seemed very odd to me. Like, I don't think it was, it was sort of set up properly in the film, why he's not 
I mean, he could lie about living with her and still introduce her as a girlfriend. It just didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but, you know, I actually think that this film is totally not watchable without the cast that it has. I mean, oh. the cast is totally carrying this premise and film and making it a lot more watchable, I think, that it is. And one of the reasons I think I was drawn to it as a younger person was because of Patrick Dempsey's, you know, charisma in the film. Um, and then some of the women who are portrayed in the film as well and the the performances that they have. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that is where some of the budget went, because without that, it would be it would be really challenging to watch, I think. Yeah, th- this is a messy. This is a really messy film. I mean, you talk about plot holes. The, the, the last five minutes make no sense um, and, and where it ends up. It's just a weird resolution, but I I would defend this one. Um, And I actually think it's really funny, but it's really funny because of Patrick Dempsey. Mm -hmm. So I I think he carries this thing. I think he, he is helped out by the Kirstie Alley's, the Carrie Fisher's, et cetera. Um, Even, you know, the, the mom and dad, et cetera. But the thing about it is, I mean, the reason to watch this film is because of him. If if you could put the 80s stuff aside, and it's just a different time period. Oh, I yeah, mean, we, yeah. we've talked about this. You know, it's it's the late 80s. Just different mindset. Um, Patrick Dempsey as a slapstick, screwball, Preston Sturgis, Marx Brothers-inspired performance really works in this thing. I mean, big time to the point there are a few scenes that I found myself laughing out loud. So when we talk about his first interaction, um, when he kind of is guilted into uh, the the sex working aspect of the job, he goes back to Kyoko's room <laughs> and she's being all seductive on the bed. But there's this netting that's around the bed. It's like a canopy. A bed, canopy. But yeah. It's like really, really intensely layered. <laughs> yeah. And he's trying to find the entrance into the bed as he's going around the, the, the bed and, and just looking for the entrance. It is hilarious. Um, I think like he, especially in the late eighties, he has this charm and charisma and it's on full display in this film. And he has this comedic timing with all these people. Um, and, and it becomes a very funny film when he's doing his shtick. Uh, now- it, when I was looking at his filmography, I was surprised because like I like I said, I'm not the biggest like I don't know Patrick Dempsey's filmography very well, but he does do like a lot of romantic comedies. And I think because he's a like a pretty naturally funny guy, because um, like he goes on and does Happy Together the same year, which is a romantic comedy, Home Sweet Home. So he's like doing a lot of romantic comedies. And I think that's a natural fit for him because a sexy and B he's a funny guy. He is. He's, he's just got charm. I mean, mm-hmm. charming I, might be another way to put it. Like being charming helps being funny, I guess in a way. Well, there, there's something, I, I don't know what you, t- I, I'm not saying I'm going to make this comment, but I don't want anybody to go, wait, did he just compare it to like Philadelphia story or bringing up baby or, you know, duck soup or anything? I, I'm not saying that. But what I get the feeling of is um, Silver, the director, they put in Fred Astaire dance sequences in this thing. There is all of these slapstick moments and, and zaniness that you would find in that 30s and 40s screwball comedy. 
So this feels like some of that DNA transposed into an 80s sex comedy. Um, and I would say 60, 70% of the time, it works really well. And I, I think it is kind of interesting where you have these bored housewives that all of a sudden they find out, oh, I can call this number for extra anchovies and here's a kid that comes you know, to the door. It, it is not the sexy Italian that works at the pizza place, but it's this scrawny, charismatic little guy who leaves roses on people's pillows, et cetera. And he's tapping into not um, the physical uh, stuff that the women are looking for, but he's... I mean, he's taking pictures with Carrie Fisher and getting her to laugh and, you know, him and Christy Alley are dancing all the time. So I, I think there's a little bit of social commentary going on in this little screwball zany comedy. And, and for the most part, it works. Like my wife and I sat down in Washington. We had a good time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember why when this thing was on, we would stop because you're waiting for the next sort of Patrick Dempsey slapstick Pratt fall. And, um, the guy's just so charming. Like I know people magazine is just pictures and you don't get his <laughs> charisma or personality in the pictures, but I guess he won that award based on just being Patrick Dempsey. I guess uh, for, for me, it felt more vignette than I kind of wanted it to be like, it, does that make sense? Like it's a, it's a scene and then a scene and a scene like it, it does. I don't know. I, I think the, the flow of this doesn't work for, for me. It, it, it could it have been a short. Maybe it has a now, plot of a short. It, now, Michelle, I don't want a, a stereotype, but was Desperate Housewives, was it like based on, on this movie? Could you see like a, mm. a one-to-one with that show to this? I mean, I think that's a theme that's run yeah, through. Yeah, they didn't. This was, they didn't. This is not thing. new. Yeah. Like, I, I think, um, I mean, you know, Madame Bovary, you know, <laughs> Anna Karenina. I mean, it's a genre of yep. literature of women who are dissatisfied. And and um, so I think that it's age old. And so they were there. You know, but I think you're right that they're picking up on some kind of, you know, Troy, you mentioned like the social commentary aspect of it. And I think it's really interesting that this was one of the very few kind of romantic comedies or teen comedy, if you can call it that, um, from the eighties directed by a woman director and that it has this layer of commentary about these women who are, um, unfulfilled for many different reasons. I mean, some of them, their husbands are having affairs, right? Some of them, they're just, they feel, um, that they're being mistreated or ignored or, um, or not romanced properly or sufficiently. Right. So there's, there's some, in a way, I think that it's more of a, it, it, it's meant to be, I don't know if it, it works as such, but it's meant to be like a female fantasy movie, I think of sorts. I, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, we, we talked at one point, some of the eighties comedies, especially the R rated ones, they're not made for the teenage audience. It's, you know, teenage characters, but due to the R ratedness and its topics and its subject matter, it's made for adults. This one, um, doesn't really get too racy at all. Right. I mean, it, right. it clearly wears its uh, parental guidance on its sleeve. Yeah. Like the, the, the sports equipment thing is like kind of the big thing there. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, um, I, I do think at PG 13, it is geared towards, well, obviously I went to see it in, in, at a mall, um, when it came out. So it's, it's geared towards, you know, the teenagers are going out on a Friday, Saturday night, just want to catch a film and it's a romantic comedy. Uh, but it seems to be saying something too, even though it's got a wonky plot and how it tries to resolve, but it's that, you know, Randy's character has to mature by learning where the void is to all of these different women and only by pleasing. And I don't mean it in a, in a naughty way, I guess, but only by kind of going, Oh, I'm not attentive to, or she's, her husband's not attentive to her needs. If he fulfills that, like Kirstie Alley loves dancing. Great. He's doing a whole Fred Astaire routine with her because that's what she's paying him for. Um, and then sort of becoming a jack of all trades and adapting to what they need. It almost um, feels like it's you're coming out of the eighties of this macho, um, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to call it the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, Sylvester Stallone phase, but it's basically saying like, if, if you want to be like the perfect eighties ladies, man, this is what you got to do. And it, and it's not be the bodybuilder that Carrie Fisher is married to. I thought of another funny scene in the movie, which is when, you know, so every time someone orders extra anchovies, this assumption is that he's, that they're hiring him as for sex work. And there's one time when he goes <laughs> over and a very beautiful woman comes out in like a skimpy bikini. Um, and, you know, he starts to undress when she walks in the other room. And it turns out that the pizza's for her kids. And they're like, did you get the extra anchovies, mom? <laughs> you know, it's just, that definitely is uh, but, one of the funnier moments, I thought. He has to quickly get yeah. his pants back on. <laughs> But again, no, no child is getting extra anchovies. Not getting anchovies at all. <laughs> is that is that one of the plot points you had a problem with, Brad? That's yes, another man. hole in the plot. Driving that truck through that plot hole, Troy. I, I'll, I'll tell you what, Patrick Dempsey. Um, the amount of times he's had to sprint and get his pants on. Uh, if you were to just take all of those edits and put it together, I think it'd be a, a really impressive supercut because the guy is super talented. Which leads me to. The, <laughs> I never noticed it until now, but uh, Patrick Dempsey has some Jackie Chan-like moves. The The way he jumps over fences and across walls is running while trying to put his pants on. That little, <laughs> that little jump from the second story window and everything. Um, this has This is really close to a Jackie Chan sex comedy, if there ever was one, <laughs> if you think about it. I, I did not expect this conversation to go there. Okay. <laughs> it is. It, but th that goes back to the physical comedy. I mean, him getting his uh, lip caught in Kirstie Alley's zipper, um, the number of times he's, you know, falling over, all the other stuff. He does it with such grace. But again, it's that 30s, 40s DNA, right? I guess. Um, can we it talk also about is funny at the end. I do think that it's funny when, you know, the mom calls in, his mom calls oh, in, Randy's yes. mom. And now we're realizing like, oh my God, Randy's going to show up for his next client and it's going to be his mom. mom yeah. um, and it ends up, he sends the, the, his Italian coworker. I, I have a, I mean, this is something that comes up in, in both films actually. Um, but there's these Italian stereotypes that, I mean, you know, okay, I, I am uh Italian as well. And I can admit that we're essential people, but 
think it goes a little far in this film. And the way that they stereotype his colleague, um, I just think, yeah, why? Um, I don't know. I was just, I was in Italy this summer and I, I saw, I saw them all over all those guys over there. I'm like, oh yeah, it's not stereotype. They're walking around <laughs> Rome all over the place. Uh, no, that is fine. They're, these two movies have a lot of similarities. Um, I do like the comic bit towards the end because the end is where it really falls. Up. I mean, it's got plot holes, <laughs> all, the, but the end with with the Italian pizza boy chasing after the mother, saying right. that, well, because you said no, now I'm in love with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's this. This is how messy the movie is. the The ex girlfriend comes back, and he's explaining what happened. And then she asks him, well, wait a minute. If I had slept with 40-some people, how would you feel? And he'd go, oh, I hate it. Well, before I take you back to the bus, because the relationship's over at that point, from that conversation, he's like, I got to stop by and save my parents' marriage. So then they go to the the wedding, um, or the excuse me, the anniversary. anniversary party. Yeah, the anniversary party. And that's where all the, the chaos and all the other husbands show up, et cetera. And how the film ends is he finally comes to realize what he did was bad and he's going to give the money back from the 42, 43 instances that he had. The dad's now sending him to college and those two are back together again. Like that, that car sequence never happened of her going, well, how do you think you would feel? But now it's all wrapped up in a nice little bow and everybody's happy. It's pure eighties. Yeah. I guess. Totally. Deuce, deuce I mean, I actually really appreciated that they included that line of like, how would you feel if the tables were turned? Yeah. You know, but then that's never really addressed. Um, and I think you're right that it's almost like that whole chaotic sequence of the other, the men coming to like take revenge on him, getting the wrong guy, you know, that whole like, you know, multi-scene sequence is a way of like putting some time between that conversation and a resolution between the two of them. Hoping the audience <laughs> forgot about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's totally, totally illogical. Um, and also, I don't know like how you both felt, but when he's giving the money back, I'm like, no, you earned that money. Like, <laughs> why should you have to give that money back? <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Donated or something. Yeah. It just didn't seem right. I didn't, I mean, I didn't like that. Like $9,000 in cash. I mean, it's straight cash. $9,000 in 1989 is a lot of money. Yeah. You could buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're right. You probably could. That's true. Um, no, it's, I don't want to say it's like harmless fun. <laughs> it's, it's got some harm in it. Yeah. Um, but if you can look past that, I, I don't know. I, I, I would almost recommend it and just kind of go, look, you you're got you've got some problems here. Just put that aside, but just watch pack. I mean, if you're if you're looking for a showcase of Patrick Dempsey, I I think this is a good example of it. At least it's different than a lot of the '80s comedies at that of that era. I feel like it's at least presenting some slight different perspective, which is something that I do appreciate. Like I said, with having even just middle aged women who are part of the story in this way, um, I think is, is intriguing. And yes, and I think it's very watchable just because of him. 
but there's a lot to look past. There's no doubt about in terms of just the plot, in terms of some of the nature of the jokes, the stereotypes. I mean, you know, it's definitely not for everybody. So if they had tried to go for more of an R rating, do you think it would have been more successful or do you just think with this plot in this story, they hit the, the, the right level that they needed for the content here. It feels a little bit more playful as like a not hard R film. Okay. That's fair. I also am thinking about, you know, there was an era in the eighties where teen movies basically always had to have female nudity in it. Like the, Mm -hmm. they were pushing for at least two scenes of female nudity, like Valley girl and, Fast Times and all of these different films. And I'm wondering if because this was 1989, it was a little bit past that when there was a more of a a reverse pushback on like, do we really need that? I also wonder if there was something about this being a woman director. Did she push back on that? Because it is sort of surprising that it didn't go in an R, especially because it is essentially a sex comedy. Yeah, it is. And those almost always are rated R. Um, because there's some nudity or sexual situations that are more, you know, a little bit more explicit. But um, so for them to have this kind of premise and still have it be PG-13 is is intriguing. Yeah, I don't I mean, as a teenager, I don't think I would have used the term sex worker and put it in that context. But, you know, looking at it from an adult perspective, you're like, yeah, I mean, Barbara Carrera is this is a terrible term, but is basically using him or pimping him out to her friends. And from that perspective, you're like, wow, that's kind of dark to a certain extent, like taking advantage of this kid who's trying to get money and, uh, you know, get back to college and get back to his lifestyle. And she's like, well, great. I'll use you for that. I mean, it's content or it's a story that can go several different ways to Brad's point. He's, but he's, Giving these other women kind of what they want. Exactly what they want. Yeah. He's an escort too, right? Because yeah. he's yes. not in, like in some cases it's not about the sex. He's just keeping them company. Yeah. That that's probably I don't I, I'm sitting here realizing I don't know all the correct Troy terminology yeah, for he's this. He's trying to say he doesn't know all the terms. <laughs> no, I don't. When you say escort, I'm like, well, what is the okay, whatever. Sex worker, <laughs> escort. Okay. Um, I guess then that leads to the 2023 version, um, <laughs> which uh, it it had. So when when you brought this to us, Michelle, and you said Lover Boy, and I was reading this, and we were going through the background. I'm like, I f- I feel like this kind of uh, was not remade, but they pretty much took very much the same premise to a certain degree in some of the same situations and repurposed it for a 2023 version. Ginger swap. Uh, yes, a little bit. Um, and with much more success, obviously. And they went the R-rated route. So this was intended for adults versus the PG-13. So Brad, let's talk about um, the next film, which came out, I think, just this last summer, right? No Hard Feelings? Correct. Yeah, so it came out June 23rd of 2023 with a reported budget of $45 million. Troy, I think this might be the closest we've ever had to a a film earning, like, basically earning $0. Like, after budget, it makes, uh, after 
his box office run, it makes $89.5 million. So we usually say take the budget times two and get your total kind of total cost. So we're looking like right at break even point. Yeah. Um, I, I will say this thing has been huge on Netflix. Um, and I was looking at how the buying of films after release um, and how that works. It is based off your box office and Sony has, I don't know if you know this or not. Sony has first right or Netflix has first right to any of Sony's films. So oh. they can, they can choose to uh, pay for them or they can pass and they can go to somebody else. And, and Sony ponied up for this one. And it's been in the top 10 on Netflix, I think since it came to Netflix. Um, well, it's funny. Um, just real quick. We'll go ahead and talk about this. So Sony had won a highly competitive uh, bidding war over the screenplay, and it was Apple, Netflix, and Universal Pictures that they were bidding against mm-hmm. because Netflix wanted this as a Netflix exclusive. Apple wanted it as because it was it was considered a pretty hot um, script because Jennifer Lawrence was attached to. It. Yep, yep. Um, so opening weekend, it makes fifteen million dollars. That's good enough for fourth place. And we can reminisce about June of 2023 because we have films like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Elemental, and The Flash beating it out. Um, Rotten Tomatoes has no hard feelings at 71%, and the audience at 87%. Uh, so the audience likes it more than the critics. And finally, films you could have seen um in june of 2023 the big ones are elemental indiana jones the boogeyman transformers rise of the beast um and the flash some of those films might be coming up in december i was gonna say i I feel like that entire list is just all bombs yes and so like we talked about before um in 2023 I will give you the highest grossing comedies of the year. Okay. Now, are we going to call Barbie a comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Barbie, the highest grossing film of 2023 so far with $1.4 billion. Uh, That's number one. Um, And then we really don't see another comedy for a while. (laughs) Um, Still scrolling. Still Haunted Mansion at 36 might be a comedy. Well, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't the Super Mario Brothers movie be a comedy, animated comedy? I know it's... Uh, that's yeah, up there. I mean, so that's number two, so yeah. 1.3. So number one, two, so, I mean, and then like 35. So so we're, mov- we're, we're losing out on the, I guess, the mid-budget comedy. Um, and, and for context, this film... Um, comes in 44th place out of all films released in 2023. Wow. Uh, so I didn't see this th- at the theater. I, th- I think you did, right, Michelle? Yeah, I saw it in the theater. Because you had um, posted about it, which I don't think it was on. I- I'm not going to say I wasn't interested. It was one of those where it's like, well, we'll put that on the back burner. You were the first one, to be quite honest, uh, in the people I, I that I would follow or even talk to that talked about this film. And then not just weeks after I saw you write something about it, then everybody was like, Hey, did you happen to catch this movie? 
it's actually really funny. And it seemed like it got a little bit more um, legs toward the end of its run. It did have some nice legs to it. Yeah. And then to Brad's point, um, next thing you know, all of a sudden it, it became sort of water cooler talk as soon as it hit Netflix or you could buy it or, or rent it on digital, et cetera. I think it's one of those films that the premise sounds like it's going to be just pretty terrible, but actually it's very watchable and pretty funny, like laugh out loud funny in several points. Oh yeah. And in surprising ways, like some of the jokes that are uncomfortable are still very funny. And so I think it, it was one of those like sleeper type of situations where people saw it and then they had, they talked, I mean, you, you sort of summed it up in the way you described the audience reaction to the film, right? So people talked positively about it and then more people watched it. And so it became, I think it, that it was a word of mouth thing. Yeah. Uh, and the director, Gene Stepnitsky, I think, I hope I'm saying that correctly, he, you've talked about his book or excuse me, his film in your book, which was 2019's good boys. Mm-hmm. Um, would, would you guys, if you look at his filmography, uh, he directed a few episodes of the office. He has more on his resume from a screenwriting perspective, right? But as an actual director, it's very limited. So you get some episodes of the office, you get good boys in 2019 and no hard feelings in 2023. Now with that limited filmography, what do you think about him, Michelle, just as a, as a director and creator? I mean, I I do like the film Good Boys, too. And I think it's interesting that both these two films, looking at them together, are about topics that are a little bit taboo in the sex comedy genre. Because the premise of Good Boys, for those who don't know, is that these are kind of prepubescent boys. It's not quite a sex comedy, but it sort of is. It's about them kind of discovering or being curious about sex, not having sex, but, um, and that just putting, you know, tween age boys in that genre at all in a rated R film, I think was extremely brave. <laughs> Is that the right <laughs> word? Um, and he kind of pulls that off and it's very funny in many ways. So I think this, this film too, like, you know, if, if you had said to me, could a movie like this be made and people would find it really funny and watchable? I would kind of say like in 2023, I would say, I'm not really sure that's passable, but somehow he pulled it off. Yeah. I I mean, if you had said you were going to take some of the basic elements of a 89 film called lover boy, where a pizza (laughs) delivery guy is, uh, you know, having relations with older women, um, and said, yeah, we're, we're Jennifer Lawrence and everything. I'd be like, this, this is crazy talk. You, you can't make that movie now, but they did more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the screenplay. I want to uh, oh, just yeah, real quick. I, I really liked good boys as well. Um, and I think the consistency between those two films is the chemistry between the cast members, like the three kids in, in good boys, you believe their friends immediately. And they, the, the stuff they go through, um, and how they react and how they, everything happens. The chemistry is unbelievable and it makes that film work. Kind of the same thing with no hard feelings. The the chemistry between Jennifer Lawrence and the other lead is, is kind of, you know, we'll get into it, but it either works or it doesn't. I'll, I would say that. Yeah. Good. Point. I also think he's kind of a master at having these films that are, um, 
borderline controversial and really like bringing consent somehow into the conversations within the film, which is pretty interesting to me as someone who's thought a lot about consent. Yeah, it, it is interesting when you pair these two together. He is very, he's very good at taking a topic that should be just very sensitive to the majority and get everybody up in arms, but then to tackle it almost head on. And then when you get out to the end of it, you go, oh, that's kind of a sweet film, <laughs> which you don't expect that from, if you see the trailer for either of these two films, mm-hmm. you would not expect this level of sweetness to be attached to the screenplay, the topic or anything within the trailer. Like it almost sneaks up on you a little bit. Um, now as a screenwriter, I'm, I'll just say it right now as a screenwriter, there's some problems <laughs> if you look at his resume. So Gene, uh, one big problem. Well, yeah, um, we've got Gene and, uh, I, I guess his buddy, John Phillips wrote the screenplay for this one. Now, now let's talk about Gene's filmography from a screenplay perspective. Year one in 2009, mm-hmm. um, he, he wrote some episodes for the office. Obviously he directed a couple of those. Bad Teacher in 2011, Good Boys in 2019. Uh, just recently, he's the creator of a TV series called Jury Duty. That's the show where there's one juror that's unaware that everybody else is acting. And then we've got absolutely brilliant show. Yeah, I've, brilliant I've heard. Show. If you haven't watched Jury Duty, you have to like watch it right now. Okay. It is amazing. Uh, John Phillips, <laughs> he's got Dirty Grandpa in 2016, and No Hard Feelings in 2023. So yeah, it, it, I don't know, but I don't know about you two. That for me, that's sort of a mixed bag of success there. I hated dirty good boss. So <laughs> I, I hated the trailer. So I never watched the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cast, uh, Brad, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, I assume you're a big fan, right? Well, I mean, I have to be, cause I live right outside of Louisville, Kentucky. So, you know, it's, she's born and bred in our, our great city. And, uh, no, I, I really think, I mean, she's got an amazing range. Uh, I remember seeing Winner's Bone because everyone was talking oh, about yeah. her performance and you watch it and you're like, okay, this person is going to be huge. Um, you know, the the current Hunger Games films would kind of suggest that maybe she was the key to that series. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just think she's amazing. Like Silver Linings Playbook, I think she's just fantastic. You know, and then she she does a lot of genre stuff like mother weird movie, but she's quite good in it. Um, not afraid to do comedies. Um, so I, I really like what she's doing. She can pretty much do everything. I mean, she's played like an action hero, comedy, um, period pieces, all that stuff. So big ups to her. But of course, I'm biased. So, okay. Michelle, you want to you want to bring some like uh, level criticism and level it out for Brad, or or are you, I actually are you the- really like her, and I think she does a great job in this film. She's very, I mean, um, I thought she was great in the Hunger Games series. I enjoyed that series as well. Um, she's just very watchable, and you know, I think kind of has the appeal of like a Patrick Dempsey. You know, it's like if she's in it you probably can enjoy it. It doesn't necessarily matter that there's going to be problems in it or whatever. So it's like, you just want to spend the time with her. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I, I, 
let me just go ahead choice so i'm not completely like bought in that movie passengers was terrible so i i will say it was that was one of the best naps i've ever had in my entire life <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is her nickname j law is that what they call her j law mm-hmm. is that okay J-Law. so we got two big j law fans then in the house right <laughs> so if i if i were to say she's terrible no i'm just kidding <laughs> You're not going to. I'm not going to. I I was looking. I mean, when you look at her filmography and you just look at just, oh, I don't know, that five year period between Winner's Bone and Joy. And then she gets four nominations and wins Best Actress for Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, She she is definitely one of the best American actresses working right now. Hands down. Like, I, I think she's brilliant. 100%. Um, now, why didn't I see this film in the theater? I don't know. There was nothing about the trailer that really hooked me into it. But let's talk about Andrew Barth Feldman as Percy. Sort of a relative newcomer. Again, limited filmography. Um, lots of small parts in television and film. Does this movie. And then in 2021, he was working on High School Musical, the musical, the series. Um, what a name. Was there two two colons in that? Yeah, two colons. High School Musical colon the musical colon the series. It ran for two years. So we get uh, Laura Benatti as Allison Becker, which is Percy's mom. Matthew Broderick as Laird, like the Laird. lasagna Becker as Percy's dad. And I just I just want to throw one name out there because anytime he shows up in a film. We got to say his name and then reference a film that he did. And that's one Kyle Mooney as Jody, which was Percy's former nanny. And uh, if you haven't seen Brigsby Bear from 2017, yes. you have to. Michelle, have you watched Brigsby, Brigsby Bear? Michelle? No. Michelle, no. Michelle I, I guarantee you will love that film. Okay. Love it. We will send you a cop. We will buy a copy for you <laughs> and send it to you. It just you pick. You want a digital Blu-ray DVD? Let us know. Um, we've already talked one about more, the, one yeah. more person, Troy, because yeah, I, I just saw this person in Denver while I was out there. Uh, the comedian Hassan Minhaj was, uh, in this film, he plays Doug, the realtor, the realtor. For, like a scene. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just saw him uh, do stand up, and, uh, then I saw him do this film. I was like, Oh, I really okay. The, I, I gotta be, <laughs> I gotta say something behind the scenes. Uh, I, I always liked Matthew Broderick. It wasn't until this week that I found out about the car accident that him and Jennifer gray were involved in. Like I knew he was in a car accident, but I didn't know the details of it. So then that took you me mean down from a, like the eighties from the eighties. I knew he was in a car accident, but I didn't know that two people died as a result of him driving. And I didn't know that. he was up for serving like five to 10 years or something like that. And then he just pays $175 fine. It, but it, yeah, just, that hey, it was he was he was in another country, Ireland. I think right? it was Ireland. Yeah, yeah. So, um, one of those things where when you start reading about somebody's personal history and what happens outside of them making films, and you're going, "Oh, Ferris Bueller," and then you read that, you go, "Ooh, well, now I got to park that into that compartment of do I <laughs> how do I separate the guy in the film from the stuff that happened outside of it?" So. Apparently there's, there's a lot of hoopla around that. So if you want some extra reading time, go read about Matthew Broderick and Jennifer gray was in the car accident too. 
production and development we already talked about. I did, I did want to share this little bit of information. The plot for this film actually came from a real Craigslist ad. And so um, Stupinski and the producers found it and they gave it to Jennifer Lawrence one night at dinner and said, um, we want to do this film. It's based on this Craigslist ad and we want you to star in it. So apparently this is a real life story. I think she's a producer on this movie as well. I think she has a producer credit. Yep. So Michelle, (laughs) you, you champion this thing before anybody else did. I I don't know about before anybody else did, but in our group you did. So um, why should people check this film out? Well, first I think it's very, very funny. I do think there's a lot of moments and, and a clever humor. Um, that's just surprising. Um, I'll just give one example where, <clears throat> you know, in the beginning of the film, the the whole premise that she's going to basically get a car for dating this 19 or dating in quotes, right? This 19 year old boy, because his parents want him to get some experience before he goes to college. I mean, the premise is, is bizarre. It's, it's more but, sex trafficking. <laughs> yeah, but the thing that's very, like the jokes that, it, that, that are made are, are pretty out there, but funny. Like there's a conversation that she has with one of her friends and the friend's husband when she's trying to decide, like she's thinking she's going to go for this and answer this ad. And the, the husband is like, well, you would, you would have sex with someone just to get a car. And, and she's, you know, her, her response is like, I've had one night stands and I didn't get a Buick out of it. You know? <laughs> and then she, they both go back and forth on this kind of litany of like reasons they've had sex. And it's like, I had sex once because I didn't want to have to commute, you know, to whatever. I, that, and, yeah. You know, when I, just, I got had sex to get out of playing Catan or. Right, I got <laughs> sex to get out of playing set of Catan once. But then it, the joke goes so far and there's this one comment where it's like, I had sex once because I thought someone was going to kill me or something. And it's, and I found myself like I laughed at that moment. And then I'm like, Oh my God, that's not funny. But But then the follow-up to that. It's him. It's the husband. He's like, really? Who? Idiot. That was you. (laughs) He's like, babe, that's okay. You're with me now. (laughs) She's like, that was you. Um, So I, I think the fact that they kind of push the humor to this, this level that like is kind of discomforting is impressive, especially since it's still funny. So that's one aspect that I like. And, and I do actually appreciate that they're trying to make something in, in this topic um, that's somewhat controversial. And ultimately I think that the, there's this message in the film, if we could say that about, you know, the overprotection of, youth today and um and what's yeah and what it, where's that coming from and like what do we expect and why is that happening um and so i think there's there's some interesting aspects in that and again even though this is a, a situation that's kind of ready for a lot of non-consensual situations i think there's some attempt here to rectify that through some of the kinds of plot situations and conversations um, and scenarios. So that also intrigues me a bit, I guess. 
I think uh, there's a lot to talk about in this film, I guess. I, I think so too. Um, where do you start? Cause let, let's do tackle the humor before we get to the serious stuff, because there's a lot of serious stuff that it does invoke, um, which surprises me. Cause I've seen this twice now. And the first time I was laughing so hard, the second time I'm still laughing, but then there are some comments that come up <laughs> and some situations that make you go, wow, that that's a very, um, astute view on our youth <laughs> or the adults and everything else. But um, Brad, I'll kick it over to you. I mean, what are your thoughts on this from, from the comedic perspective? Dude, there is a part where Jennifer Lawrence gets punched in the throat and <laughs> her physical comedy is so good. And when she does that, I like, I had to go back and, and watch kind of the dialogue after that. Cause I was laughing pretty hard. Cause I just think it's super funny. And then, I mean, she goes for it. And I mean, there's a nude scene where she fights people while she's nude and gets punched in a bad place. And, you know, I didn't think that I would ever see Jennifer Lawrence fight people on a beach while she was naked, but it's like kind of funny. Like it is really, really funny. Um, And like that level of commitment, like that took a a long time to shoot apparently. And she was like, I'm not having a body double. I'm, I'm doing this. Uh, so good up for her, like, you know, having that, that power over that. Um, I really, I really found it really funny. She can do a lot. It is really, really funny physically. And just with the way she, you know, she's kind of naturally sarcastic and kind of a smart ass. So it, it works, but you know, Percy is also funny is, is, is kind of that, uh, kind of nerdy kid who, you know, is still trying to figure things out. And then, you know, the, the parents are played for laughs, but you're also like, boy, these people are pathetic. Like the way they kind of helicopter parents as, as someone who has small kids now, and you see some of the way that people like, you know, kind of helicopter their kids a little bit. Um, you're like, wow, they're going to grow up with these kind of parents. So no, I, the humor works from start to finish for me, like I find this to be very, very funny. Yeah. We, can we talk about, um, so when Lawrence and Feldman, the, the minute they meet on screen, this movie takes off with yeah, their chemistry is unbelievable. It's ridiculous. Like, I, I think that's where the success of this thing is, but I want to talk about Feldman for a minute. That guy is absolutely hysterical. His timing, his tone, his delivery, it is pitch perfect. He will say these lines there and, and just on paper, I, I can't imagine him looking at the script and going, <laughs> okay, how, how do I, how am I going to make this funny? But he does. And there are so many laugh out loud moments. Um, like when he says, this is the worst iced tea I <laughs> am rolling, but the way he delivers that line, it's, it's just perfect. Um, when they go back to her house and then she's doing her seductive dance and she's like, you know, Oh, smack that. And he's like, Oh, so, so is that consent? <laughs> or, or when, he, when she walks out and he's like, Oh, look, we're wearing the same shorts. I mean, he does these little lines of delivery that are, that are just fantastic. Um, I, he also says at one point, I, you're the type of person that we take dogs away from when yeah. he's interviewing her about whether she should be um, a dog <laughs> and and his whole uh man eater story has a fantastic <laughs> payoff 
which turns yeah. into this sweet moment where, where you, you can pinpoint at the part of the film where she recognizes she's in trouble because she actually really cares for him through that dinner scene. Um, but man, I mean, as good as J law is since, since we're using her street name as good as she is in this film, I, I gotta, I gotta be honest. I think, I think he steals almost every scene. Um, with, with these quick little one-liners, just, just when the pool cues like a uh, rack or something in the background oh my God. and, and he, he gets scared and has that fit. He's, he's bringing that Patrick Dempsey slapstick energy over from lover boy into that role. I think he's brilliant. <laughs> I, he's so good in this. That was one of the funniest movements, the expression on his face. Like I'm just imagining them doing that scene over and over again and him having to like do that over and over again. And he just, he pulls that off so well. He's just so jumpy. And I, I love the whole concept of, you know, this disconnect generationally. Like she's from this other generation where consent doesn't matter as much, where, you know, um, I don't know that like, why do they need to get to know each other? They should just like, obviously he should just be into it immediately. Like, why wouldn't he be? And, and then the fact that he's like, but I want to get to know you or, you know, he's just not, he's not of that mindset is so disorienting to her. And I think there's a lot of humor for both of them on that. His kind of hesitance, hesitancy about like being physical you know, even when he like breaks out into hives and he's like, I'm sorry, I know you're really horny. You know? <laughs> I'm like, it's just, it's really comical. It, and, it um, is when he, when he says the line, like, can we spend the day together and then I'll put out, I mean, <laughs> right. I, but, but it also, you know, like when she goes back to the party and is like the old person at the party and she's like very condescending to the kids. And then she makes a gay joke and they're like, well, what would be the problem with that? And like, they all get out their phones and she's like, wait a minute. Like it, it just kind of shows like her trying to bridge this gap is very difficult, mm -hmm. but like, you know, how different people are now when you go to part, I remember, you know, you go to parties and you just made fun of people all the time and stuff. And you were very condescending. And now kids aren't like that in it. It's different in like, she's not able to kind of swim through those waters, you know, even being like very, you know, very attractive and stuff. People are like, how old are you? Like immediately, <laughs> like people are wondering how old she is. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's funny how this does, this film does try to like, feels like it tries to bridge the gap between like gin, I don't know, like millennials and, gen z a bit um and i think it's very conscious move to to do that do you do you think it so that makes a good segue or transition to some of the things that it's that it might be saying or talking about so let's start there i mean you've, you've got two um what they're about 15 years difference apart from each other 18 i think technically she's she's 32 yeah yeah she's 32 he's 19 so 13 years yeah okay yeah so you have a pretty big age gap but it's, a, it, it's yeah he's a teenager still so like i, I don't know it, it feels a little he's bit he's not even old enough to bit. drink yeah so um <laughs> i like how he says vermouth i like my vermouth <laughs> <laughs> um how do you think it handles that topic in general because you, you do get the party sequence 
I'll, I'll share my thoughts. I, I feel like at times it is critical of both in, in a very good way. And by that, I mean, it is kind of pointing out the, Hey, this is kind of silly to be that sensitive on something or, Hey, um, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be saying that or doing that. <laughs> so it, I, this is that element that I always am surprised. Same with good boys is within a film like this and you get a sex comedy and it's very farcical and it, and it's very hyper in certain sections. There happens to be this commentary or sweetness that comes through and it's never mean spirited. It feels very observational. I don't know if you guys get that. I, I think you're right that it's sort of a, a little bit, um, well, it's, it's not mean spirited, but I think it's a little bit scathing on both generations in yeah. different ways i mean like this whole idea when she's at the party and she goes room to room trying to find percy right and she walks into one room and they're like on their phone and then she walks into another room they're doing vr she's like doesn't anybody have sex anymore you know this is at a party <laughs> yeah. she's running through the upstairs bedrooms thinking she's gonna find him in some compromising situation <laughs> and um and so i think that that the the fact that they're kind of showing him in this situation where he has been hiding in this virtual world because he was bullied and then couldn't kind of find his way out of that into like a real world scenarios. And obviously the the goal is kind of, I think the message of the film is that he should be in the real world more. And so to some extent, that's kind of a, um, an indictment on that generation, perhaps. But at the same time, we get the reverse, I think, on uh, for her generation in that it's like this assumption that everything should be sexual. You know, when she talks about intense dreams and he's like thinking she just means like intense of any sort and she's thinking like intense sexually or, you know, just the fact that she thinks he's already consenting just because why wouldn't he want her and he doesn't, that's not true for him. I think is also a, a, a kind of pushing back on some of the assumptions or um, yeah, of that generation as well. Yeah. There, there is this aggressiveness from her character. Right. Um, that y you almost feel by the end of the film, it's toned down a little bit. Like she has done some introspection. Uh, she has learned from him to kind of take stock in what the environment is and how, what she says or what she does is going to be interpreted by everybody else. But at the same time, he understands. I mean, what I like about this film is it's basically saying maybe Percy's problem isn't that he hasn't had sex yet um, or has had the experience of his father. Cause that's what kicks this whole thing off. Right. right? But it's the fact that he's truly lacking a connection. He, mm -hmm. he just doesn't have anybody to connect with on some kind of intellectual or emotional level. And that's where they end up at the end of the film. I mean, it does everything possible to dodge the act of her taking advantage of mm -hmm. him. And then even the sequence in their bed, you're like, uh-oh. And how it ends up playing out is it's just absolutely hilarious. But then it kind of hammers home where the film's going to end up, which is it isn't about the physical stuff. It's all about, you know, the last couple of days what he was really lacking was somebody that he could tell that story to about be bowling that he felt comfortable enough to say, yeah, I have this talent on the piano and I'm, I'm willing to share it in public or something. It, it's crazy because 
I think the one thing that um, Feldman does with this character is he's, he's not just incredibly funny, but it's one of the few characters I've seen that from an authentic or organic standpoint is motivated by fear. Everything he does is fear. He only plays the piano out of fear of what she's going to do as a result of that. Um, and to see him kind of overcome that through the story, I mean, he's such a good actor because he not only brings the funny and the slapstick, et cetera, but it just feels all authentic. Like the reason why he's that way is that the entire fear dominates his life up until he, he, he kind of gets out of that towards that third act. I well, there's also like, that, that know. moment at dinner when that girl comes up and, and he starts talking to her. And I think she starts to realize Jennifer Lawrence, Maddie is starting to realize that, Oh, I have started to help this guy make these connections. And if he's like making connections with other people, does he need me anymore? Like is, is, am I going to be replaced by, you know, some other girl? And it's like, look at me, I'm Jennifer Lawrence. This other girl has nothing on me, but like, he's making this connection. Um, she's like seeing how she can become obsolete very quickly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there, there are lots of scenes in this where you can see Percy, starting to starting to evolve um you know especially with later on with his parents and him confronting them and 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 all that um there's a lot of like character growth in here on both you know maddie and percy and it's 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 weird right because in the first act we have jennifer lawrence getting punched in you know down below and then by the end of it like they care for each other and i think this is one of the films that like if people like you could tell if someone's actually seen this or not. Like if they still like believe the controversy. Cause like after I got done seeing this for the first time, I'm like there's not, re- I mean, yes, the relationship, there's this age gap there, but if you see it, like it's played very, very well in, in it goes places and there's development. And I don't think they love each other at the end, but they definitely like care for each other and she cares for him. And, but like, there's, by the end of it, I think they would be the, the the people who would actually be like, oh, no, we're just friends. And they would be just friends. I think that compared to Loverboy, this screenplay is just pretty masterful in how tight it is. Oh, yeah. You know, everything kind of makes sense. Even her story, like, wait, why would a character, you know, they answer every question. Like, so, for instance, you know, why would she not? just find some other guy who's going to help her out during the summer. They have all these people that come in and right. They, they explain that through the the plot because she is a, a child of a mom who, you know, she was the other woman for a guy who was coming in for the summer from New York and then he abandoned them. And so she has this hang up about the people who come in and, you know, and those those older men who come in and are looking for a fling. And so she's not ever going to go there. And so the fact that he's like this young, experienced kid and his parents are looking for somebody is a scenario that is something that she could get more behind versus, you know, what would be maybe the more obvious and perhaps more realistic scenario um, of finding a lover her own age or older. 
Um, but I think, you know, in, in every aspect of this film, like I feel like, oh, I love the scene where, you know, is, is it the Tesla that turns on and then the phone, mm-hmm. like the, the, the phone Bluetooth. clicks over, yeah, to Bluetooth. And that's how he starts to like piece together what's happening. And they're like, wait, did we lose you? You know, it's just like, it, it, there's a lot of, I think, clever moments here. And the, the script overall is just very, very tight, like clearly extremely professionally written and well thought, I think, through, you know. Yeah, you don't, yeah, I mean, you don't get the This is five holes. minutes longer than Loverboy and feels, <laughs> like, you know, light years quicker. Yeah. It does. Um, and I, I don't know. I I think the other thing, it, it, it's amazing because every time you watch it, you go, well, this is this has a nice little commentary on the helicopter parents or what parenting is like in 2023 to a certain degree. Like they you you sit back and you wonder, like, do the parents even know about the bullying aspect of it? Or do they just think, oh, I got to prepare, you know, our kid for college. And so therefore, let's hire a sex worker and, um, you know, get him to to go out to a few parties and then he'll be fine for college. I mean, that seems like how they like how they even asked, like. Could like would you imagine these parents even ask what's going on? Yeah, I mean there, there's that whole scene where he's lecturing them, um, and you know it it is crazy because um, I mean we're all raising kids and you've run across those parents that their idea of parenting is the control aspect rather than the connection aspect, mm-hmm. and that's on full display here. And I've met tons of parents where it comes down to, hey, I know exactly where my kid is. I know I'm I'm telling the choices or I'm helping my my child make those choices. I'm making sure that there's no mistakes, everything else. And it, it feels in a very sort of protective bubble all the time. And then it, it's funny, even his first sexual sexual experience is going to be in a protected scenario by a person mm-hmm. that's hired by the parents. I mean, it's the most extreme version of protectionism. <laughs> um but I think I love it, that I love that line when he says, I'm gonna be changing my password, and the mom's like, To what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's that aspect of the film too, where I'm like, well, that's kind of smart because that's exactly what is going on to a certain degree. Um, where parents think and, and they're not doing it out of anything except great intentions, right? To protect their kid. But at what point does it become so overprotective that they've created the environment that that's he has no failure and therefore that's where all that fear comes from of failing or experiencing something and having a connection. And this, this thing has layers. You just don't expect it to happen. But they feel like they're doing something right because their son got into Princeton. Sure. So it just like basically gives them more like, Oh, we, we raised our son correctly. Look, he's going to Princeton. He's doing all this stuff. Great. Um, And when he says he's not going to like that shatters their worldview. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, I've definitely thought about some of these issues, like as a parent too, just as an aside, you know, for example, I mean, kids, I think the average age that kids get a cell phone is something like 10 or something Mm -hmm. like that, like a smartphone. It's really young. And, um, you know, I definitely had like our kids walked around when they were like, you know, walked to school and stuff at a younger age. And so they had phones and a lot, I remember when, you know, kids were, my kids were in middle school, like a lot of the parents surveilled their children's cell phones like so in other words you know okay you're allowed to have this phone but i'm going to read all your text messages and i'm gonna you know 
et cetera, et cetera. And I just personally never felt comfortable with that. Like to me, that felt like the same thing of like someone's having a sleepover and I've got my ear to the door. Like I just, it seemed like a (laughs) private conversation between like my child and a friend. And I, 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 I understand why parents do it. And I understand the concern, but I also always felt like, wow, that seems really invasive. Like, I think that it's, it's, there's this idea that, you know, I don't know. I guess I think that all people deserve privacy, even children. So um, just because I remember being a child and wanting privacy too. So I just, but like you said, uh, I think Troy, you made that, that comment. What did you say? Connection versus protect connection or it's basically connection versus control. I mean, control, control over connection. And that's like, Oh my God, that's so true. Because if you have the connection, then you can have the conversation and you you could be the you could be a, a support system hopefully um but if you're just trying to control then you know how effective is that ultimately yeah i mean it's that that's always the dilemma with parenting right how much do you control how much do you influence um it's i mean brad and i experience it i, I know you experience it in the in the teaching world we experience it in the corporate world of how much, um, especially when you're working with larger teams, do you micromanage versus macromanage? It's all different styles, right? Um, raising kids is different, obviously, a lot more on the line than the stuff that goes on at work. But at the same time, you're using a lot of the same tools, right? You never want to micromanage all the time. You never want to macromanage all the time. You got to find that right balance. Um, and I think this film kind of says a lot. I mean, the fact that the kids are having a party and there's all this alcohol and there's a cake and the parents are there, that would have <laughs> never happened at any of the parties I went to in high school, but it happens all the time now today because the parents want to control the scenario because they're thinking about the parties they went to and they're like, well, mm-hmm. this, this, if I'm controlling it, that incident won't happen or it won't get as crazy. And it, it's, it's weird because I said, I, I think it's, I think it says a lot about society today. And I, 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 I don't think it's a good thing to be quite honest to your point that control automatically becomes an invasion of privacy. Where's the rebellion go then? I, I don't know. I mean, being part of a kid is being rebellious and, and I, I, that's what that I thought outlet. too. Is, yeah, that still, it, is that still true? I maybe not know. anymore, but like rebelling for me was a, a great way for, for me to get some things out and figure out some stuff. And now it's like, where does that go? And then you start thinking about some of the problems we have in the, in this country. And it's like, is that where the rebellion goes? Like, are we, yeah. Does it come out later in life? Maybe does it come out later in life or something way more extreme? Cause we build up all, all this. We were very so well protected, but now once we get out and we don't feel protected, then we feel like too afraid. And then that afraid being afraid turns into, you know, panic and panic turns into worse and worse things. And you know, the, the outcome is, is way worse. So yeah. I mean, I, did I think uh, a Jennifer Lawrence film where, you know, she tries to escort, I guess we'll say uh, a 19 year old would have me thinking about a lot of this stuff. I didn't, but afterwards i was like wow this thing says a lot and it it, kind of goes back to like the good boys conversation too like that said a lot too and i was thinking about it i'm like if like he does another one of these like i'm definitely gonna see it as soon as i can because i i think these are really smart 
there is some vulgarity. Like they're not soft. Like they're very hard R films, but they're saying things. They're there's sweetness to it as well. Like when he's playing the piano, I'm like, this is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Like so touching, um, you know, but 45 minutes earlier we had, you know, a, a new fight on the beach. So, <laughs> you know, I, I just think it, it really kind of does like all the emotions really well in, in, I, I don't know, man, like this is one of, one of my favorite comedies I've seen in a long time. I agree. Yeah, I, and it's very funny. Yeah, it, it is very, and that helps too. Like the comedy really hits. It's just interesting. You you were just talking, Michelle. Like in the eighties, you had to have two nude scenes, and um, <laughs> there are all these requirements for the sex comedy. This movie marks all those boxes, quite honestly, mm-hmm. for everything that would have came out in the eighties. But it's way more intelligent and smart than the stuff that we got, right? Um, but what? But what I is, always felt. I always felt like in nudity in in the eighties, like. I always felt like the perverted director was like, no, you're going to do this. And I've, I'm going to make you do this. Like, get them out here. I always felt like Jennifer Lawrence was like, no, I'm going to do like, I'm going to do this. Cause I, I want to, you know, they just, I have, you know, well, it makes sense for the story versus power over my own body. I'm going to yeah. do it. Like not being coerced into it. That, I think that's the difference for me. No, that makes sense. It, the, the similarities, I mean, not just that they both have um, a young Italian stud in each film, but I, I mean, this this Percy character has a lot of the qualities of Randy in terms of maybe the slapstickness, um, just very charming. They're, they're both extremely charming. I think the difference is you get, you know, one older woman, we'll call her the cougar and Jennifer Lawrence versus, you know, four or five. And to me, Loverboy kind of tackles some of the same things in terms of its comedy and its style these both feel like they have a little bit of a 30s 40s screwball dna to it where um some of that comedy comes from it's just this one feels so much smarter than the other one which we've already said um and there's there's really good character development like randy's about the only one that you could say goes through this character arc even though his parents are going through something off to the side as a subplot in lover boy but the Randy one, I kind of believe, not 100%, just how they wrap things up at the end. But to your point, Michelle, what makes this script so good is I believe where everybody starts and where everybody ends in this. Because you you basically have two immature people coming to this scenario from two different angles. But at the end of the film, they've both matured in such a way that they've got a really good relationship. And it feels natural. Like, it, I totally w- would not be surprised to run into these two people in the real world. That's how good you know their acting is. Yeah, what I, mean, I, oh, I do ahead. think that 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 this film too has some scenarios that just felt like, wait, why is that? Like the whole riding on top of the car thing, like them driving while the yeah. other one is on the car. I'm not sure what to make out of that. Like it just felt so extreme and bizarre. But for most of it, it feels like very very. Um, not realistic, that's not the right word, but just, you know, the scenarios, like I said, make a lot of sense and it just all really holds up well under scrutiny. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but I think they sell it. Like the difference is some of the screwball antics that occur within Loverboy, it's hard to believe 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because the the characters are They're hard much more to genuine believe. in this one. Yeah. Th- this one, it feels genuine. And you, and if somebody had told me, oh, yeah, back in high school, I was naked on top of a car and, I, you know, some lady was driving me around and somebody was telling me that story. It's like, well, OK, I, I, I might believe it get, if it comes from somebody who, you know, just sells it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You, you can have the most absurd things in a in a comedy film or thriller or something of that nature. At the end of the day, the performances are going to make you believe it as a viewer, right? Yep. I, I will. My my favorite scene in in the film is someone calls her ma'am, and she just has like this most disgusted look on her face. As someone <laughs> who is going through the going out places now, and people call me sir, just makes you feel like super old. I'm sorry, Brad. I'm already there, so it's, it's the it's the it's the gray. Like I'm getting gray in my beard and gray in my hair. It's oh just... yeah, I've, I've I've been wearing it for a while. So join the club. I will say this there, this movie, the other thing it makes me think is there's just not enough Bob Seger songs in films. <laughs> I, I know Brad, you're, I'm just a big Bob Seger fan. So, um, no, I, I think, well, let me ask you this. Do these make a good double bill together? I think you should watch no hard feelings second. <laughs> if you do that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Cause if you watch it first, lover boy does not, does not no. compare. You're just going to be very disappointed. Yeah. That's true. Which, which I kind of think like, eh, skip it. Just watch this one. Just watch <laughs> No Hard Feelings. That's fair too. I, I don't know. Lo- Lover Boy's a curious oddity. And again, Patrick Dempsey, if you're going to celebrate Patrick Dempsey, go back to his uh, late 80s stuff. You don't have to watch Grey's Anatomy for the 15th time. Go see some of his early films. Uh, Michelle, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us talking about these films. Can can we get you to maybe plug some of the stuff that's going on? I know you have a film that uh, is in competition and showing in a lot of places, but we we want everybody to kind of um, just discover you because I know you're writing a lot too. I think you've had five or six articles published this year alone. I love your Barbie article that you wrote about the mid- midlife. That one was a big hit, Barbie and my midlife crisis. Your midlife crisis. I love that. But uh, yeah, how do, how do how does everybody just find out more about you and all the stuff you're working on? So the best way to learn more about what I write and make as a filmmaker is to go to my website, which is michellemeek.com. And Michelle is with one L, so M-I-C-H-E-L-E-M-E-E-K.com. And then I have my book, Consent Culture and Teen Films, Adolescent Sexuality in U.S. Movies that just came out this year. And a short film, Bay Creek Tennis Camp, which is screening at film festivals currently. Uh, and it's really a story about uh, youth and sports and inclusion around gender. So, yeah. Um, I And I people can contact me through my website as well. Yeah, your website also has links to the articles that you wrote in sort of chronological order. Um, and then former shorts that you've done, uh, they can see those as well on the website too, right? Yes. Currently, um, Bay Creek Tennis Camp is only screening online when it's part of a film festival. But eventually it will be online too. And my other short films can be viewed online through my website. Awesome. Well, I, I got a, just a quick question for you because the other thing that we're doing this month is we're celebrating um, film noir, noir November. I, I got to ask real quick, do you have a favorite film noir? It's always so hard for me to know like what exactly, like does Notorious count in that genre? 
Would you count a Hitchcock film like that in there? Yeah, I mean, strange, that, Strangers on a Train counts. It. I mean, if if Notorious counts in that genre, then I would say that is my favorite. Okay. Um, but if not, yeah, that's like a spy noir film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah if that counts, that's that is like one of my all time favorite films. Period. I mean, Cary Grant, Ingmar Bergman. You can't can't go wrong. Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, the, the whole terminology came from critics trying to describe like a, a period of film from 40s and 50s. So you can call film noir whatever you want, uh, <laughs> neo-noir, et cetera. There's so many subgenres, but that that's a great pick. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad, anything else? If if anybody wants to get a hold of us, how do they do that? Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com or they can head over to Not A Bomb Podcast and hit up our website there. Contact us button is there. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Yeah. Cool. We have two more weeks of uh, Noir Vimber coming up. So yeah. Yes, Next sir. week. Oh, for this week, Troy, you got two films. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Narrow Margin from 1952 and Narrow Margin from 1991. Yeah, it's I, I cannot wait to talk about those films. Um, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Michelle, please, uh, anything else you ever want to do, you pick it, you get all the time devoted at any point in time. This is so much fun. I love um, the films you you decide to throw away to talk about because as Brad said, if if <laughs> I never thought going into tonight, we'd be talking about some of the topics we were talking about with these uh, cougar rom coms. I'm I'm gonna <laughs> trademark that if it hasn't been tra- trademarked. I think, I think yet. you should you should get that domain. <laughs> I know. See, I'm not getting that domain, uh, but I'll trademark it so that whoever gets the domain, we make a little coin <laughs> off of it. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode. Please head over to Michelle Meek's website. Check out all of the stuff that she has to offer. It's a lot of fun. And uh, join us next time as we keep going with the film noir stuff. And we'll catch you then. Don't lose your head. Thanks.